Hey murder lovers, this is Fatina, and you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. Hey murder lovers, thank you so much for all the participation that we had in the face mask giveaway. Congratulations to the 10 winners, and the masks will be in the mail shortly. If you didn't win, please hang around. Keep an eye out on the social medias. The holiday season is coming up, and I'm sure we're going to have more contests to make sure that everyone gets a little something from Stranger Danger. So for today's episode, I wanted to keep on trend of spooky, mysterious. This is more mysterious because it is true crime, but it's not so spooky as far as ghosts or legends go. So before we get started today... I have someone very special in the room with me, my lovely wife, Kara. Hey, murder lovers. And our little mascot, Mila's in the room. As always, I'm going to start by telling you a little background on who, in this case, was the victim, Robert Gwon, just because I want you to get an idea of who he was, and it helps you build an image of Was he just in the wrong place at the wrong time? Did he set himself up to be in these circumstances? I think it's helpful to understand a little bit of his background, who he was, where he came from, what he did in life up to this point. So Robert Eric Wan was born in New York City in 1974. He was a fourth generation Chinese American and he went to the University of William and Mary where he founded the 13 Club. This was a secret club that did random acts of kindness in the community. That's awesome. Yeah. And he did this a lot where he was part of organizations or groups that did philanthropic work, not only in their local community, but he focused a lot of his efforts to also help the East Asian and just Chinese community as well. So when he graduated there in 1996, he was given an award for his service to the community. During his time at William & Mary is when he met and became lifelong friends with a man named Joseph Price. He was also pursuing law. So after William & Mary, he attended the University of Pennsylvania Law School, and he also continued his community outreach while he was pursuing his law degree. He went on to pass the New York City bar exam in 1999 after graduating. In 2000, so right after graduating, Robert went to Washington, D.C. and joined the firm of Covington and Burling as an associate focusing on commercial real estate and employment law. Page flip. (laughs) In 2002, he went to a law conference in Philadelphia, and this is where, as fate would have it, he met Catherine Yu, the love of his life. She lived in Chicago at the time. He lived in Washington, D.C., but because he had attorney money, (laughs) he could afford and was madly in love with her so he would fly out every weekend for the next couple of months just to see her and spend time with her and get to know her eventually soon after he proposed marriage she accepted they got married in 2003 so within a year of meeting 
they got married. That's quick. So at this point in career-wise, both of them are successful lawyers. On June 30th, 2006, Robert had been with this firm six years. He left that job and he moved to Oakland, Virginia. He had taken on the role of general counsel for Radio Free Asia. Why did I say that wrong? (laughs) Asia. Asia. Radio Free Asia was an organization or is an organization that published online news and information and commentary to listeners in East Asia. Because of their new move to Oakland, Virginia, they would now have a 30-mile commute every morning, every evening. But they would commute together. They would take the metro in part ways in the day, come back together in the evening after their respective jobs. On July 29th, he was presented with the opportunity to attend a continued law education course, which would be happening on the evening of August 2nd. So from here on out, I'm just going to refer to this continued law education course as CLE. So Robert decides that he will attend the class, and because it's an evening class and he's new at this Radio Free Asia job, he's going to take the opportunity of that evening and go have a meeting and introduce himself to the night crew at Radio Free Asia. He also realizes that logistically, since he's going to go to work that day, he's going to go to the evening class and then go meet with the night crew, it would just be better to spend the night in Washington, D.C. that night instead of traveling 30 miles home, sleeping, what, a couple of hours just to wake up and commute again in the morning. Mm -hmm. So he's like... Do I have any friends here in Washington, D.C. that I could stay with? He first reaches out to a female friend, calls her. We don't know the conversation, but it's probably something like, hey, can I stay with you a night? This and this is happening. For some reason, one reason or another, that friend said no. Maybe she was out of town. We don't know what happened. But then he sends out an email to his old college buddy, Joseph Price. And again, we don't know the email, But it was probably something along the same lines, like, hey, I'm going to, you know, I want to stay the night in Washington, D.C. this night. I'm staying late for a class. Can I crash at your place? Can I crash at your place? And Joseph Price was like, yeah, absolutely. Come on over. He has a townhouse in the the heart of downtown of D.C. That's so weird. D.C. is such a strange place. (laughs) It it is a weird place. It's, It's not a state. I Googled this again this morning. It is not one of the 50 states. Um, which makes me look really smart, but um, <laughs> I'm, I didn't know that. Don't look at anybody's Google <laughs> search <laughs> <No>. history. <laughs> so, because James Price uh, has a spare bedroom, he was right down the street from where he was working at. This was all going to work out for him. And then the plan was, you know, the next morning after he had a full day of work again, he would just meet up with Catherine to go home the next night. He puts this plan in motion. He lets Catherine know, hey, on August 2nd, I'm going to go to this class. Afterwards, I'm going to meet with my night crew. And then afterwards, I'm going to go to Joseph Price's house and I'm going to spend the night there. I'll meet you the next day. Everything was good up until this point. Yeah, sounds normal enough. Right? Okay, so now a little bit about Joseph Price. We already know that he went to school with Robert. They're old classmates. They were friends. We know that they had a relationship, a regular 
adult friendship. Yeah. <laughs> they met up a couple times a year. Bros. We know that they were close enough to where Joseph hosted Robert's 30th party, which is a pretty big deal. Dirty 30. Dirty 30. He hosted that in Washington, D.C. for him. So we know that they're really good friends. I mean, that's what you do when you're really good friends. You host a birthday party for the other person, right? Right. So they've kept in touch throughout the years. This has been, you know, a long time. He graduated, what, 2000 from from college. So William and Mary. Joseph is also a very successful lawyer in the area of Washington, D.C. So he went to University of Virginia, and he became the president of the Lesbian and Gay Alumni Association. In 2002, he also founded and was general counsel for Equality Virginia, which is a local gay rights advocacy group. His townhouse, like I said, was in the middle of downtown. He shared it with Victor Zaborski, his partner of 10 years. They had two roommates, Dylan Ward and Sarah Morgan. This is where all the names come in. Yeah, I'm going to try and keep track. Try and keep track. (laughs) So Joseph, Victor, and Dylan were a throuple. (laughs) Yeah. So Joseph and Victor, at this point, had had an ongoing relationship for 10 years. Sarah was Victor's best friend of 16 years. Victor was successful in his own career. He worked as a marketing manager for one of the milk processors programs. And fun fact about this, they're the organization behind the Got Milk campaign. Which, if you don't know, was a big deal. Huge deal. There were, what are those, billboards everywhere. I had had a Mia Hamm poster that said Got Milk. Yes, Mia. (laughs) One of the best women's soccer players of all time. Ever. So so Dylan had recently received his license to be a massage therapist. And although it's reported that they were in a polyamorous throuple relationship, the Sexual, intimate, personal relationship was really between Joseph and Dylan. They had a sub and dom relationship. The dominant one being Dylan. Joseph was the submissive in the relationship. And Dylan and Victor didn't have much of a physical sexual relationship at all. Hmm. They said they were working on it. They all called each other family. But Victor and Dylan were still working on that component of the relationship. But they all lived under the same roof. Interesting. And Joseph and Victor had their own master bedroom on the third floor of this townhouse. Third floor. Third floor. Yeah. Again, attorney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) In Washington, D.C. In Washington, D.C. Buku money. So... And, and Dylan had his own bedroom on the second floor. The second floor is also the room that had the guest bedroom. And on the first floor was Sarah's room. On the night of Wednesday, August the 2nd, Sarah, around 6 p.m., told the guys at the house, Hey, guys, I'm going out with some other friends. Don't wait up for me. We're going to be out. I might just crash at their place, so don't wait up for me. Mm. This is around 6 p.m. So on the day of Wednesday, Robert and Catherine commute into D.C. and they go about their separate ways at 8.45 in the morning after they arrive there. 
And the next time that Robert speaks with Catherine is around 9.30 p.m. when the CLE class was over. And he called her, probably just to check in. Say goodnight. Say goodnight. But he said to her, class is over. I'm heading over to the night crew now over at Radio Free Asia. A co-worker of his that also attended the CLE class that night confirmed that Robert was at the class. They stopped at Subway afterwards, grabbed a sandwich, and then walked together to the workplace. Together, they got there at around 9.40 p.m. So, 10-minute walk. That's not far. After meeting with the night shift crew and wrapping up the meeting, it was around 10.24 p.m. Robert places a call to Joseph Price from his office. And I think this was more of a courtesy call saying, hey, I'm done with everything that I needed to do today. I'm going to be hailing a cab and I'll be in your house about 10 minutes. The cab ride from Radio Free Asia to Joseph's apartment or townhouse was about eight minutes. So Joseph later reported that when he got the call from Robert that night, The guys had just been cleaning up after themselves for dinner, and he himself was working on one of the showers that was leaking, so he was cleaning up that mess. So he remembers exactly what he was doing when he got that call. Not a big deal. So Robert hailed a cab and arrives at Joseph's house between 10.30 and 10.40 p.m. So we're still good on timeline. There's nothing amiss from going to work, going to Joseph's house. So Victor... Prior to August 2nd, he had just gotten home early, earlier than he thought he would from an out-of-town business trip. He wasn't aware that Robert was going to go spend the night there, but he was totally fine with it because they're friends. Yeah, they knew each other. When, and Victor says that when Robert got there, he was upstairs in the third be- in the third floor bedroom watching Project Runway. <laughs> And so when Robert gets there, he's greeted by Joseph and Dylan. They go into the kitchen, they share a glass of water, and I'm sure Robert's like, all right, guys, I'm tired. Yeah. Where am I crashing, right? Going to bed. So it's not sure who is it that showed him up to the room, but we know that they said, hey, here's the room, here's the bed, here's it's a pull-out bed, so they helped him pull out the bed, supposedly, maybe. Then Victor who was upstairs in the room watching Project Runway, said that Joseph got into their master bedroom right before Project Runway was over, so it must have been around 10.50 p.m. So it was before the top of the hour and the show wasn't over yet, which confirms that Robert and Joseph didn't have that long of a conversation in the kitchen. He was there for less than 10 minutes. Yeah, less than 10, 15, 20 minutes. And... At that point, Dylan had also gone up to his room in the second floor, and he said that he took a sleeping pill, opened up a book, and read for a short little while. He heard the shower running in Robert's room, thought nothing of it. Of course, he just got off work, took a shower, going to bed. Mm. He said that while the shower was going is when he drifted off and went to sleep. And Dylan recounts that that night... Joseph had asked both him and Robert before going to bed and seeing them off that they keep their doors closed because it was a hot night. They would have the AC running and they wanted to maximize the efficiency of that AC going. That's how you keep your money. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Right? 
So Joseph and Victor were in bed, and Victor asked Joseph to turn off the TV at around 11, 10 p.m. So shortly after Project Runway, he was watching a little Vice TV, and then Victor said, yo, go ahead and turn that off. But we know that at exactly 11.05 p.m., there was records showing that Robert had drafted an email on his BlackBerry, and this email was addressed to Catherine, letting her know that he had gotten to Joseph's house, had showered, and planned on going to sleep soon. This email was never sent out. At 11.07, there was another email drafted on Robert's phone. This one was to a co-worker confirming their lunch for the next day. Again, this email was never sent, but saved as a draft. I, I'm assuming that's probably autosave. Yeah, I think that, yeah, well, if you exit out. If you out. don't, yeah, if you exit out. If you don't remember what a BlackBerry looks like, you're probably too young. <laughs> but these are big phones that have the whole keyboard on them. Actual buttons. Actual push-down buttons. And it's... It's important because we'll get back to the phone. We'll circle back to the phone and why theories on that and why we think it's important. So this is where the mystery starts happening. So between 11 and 11.30 p.m., the next door neighbor, William Thomas, describes that he hears a scream of desperation coming from Joseph's townhouse his townhouse and Joseph's share walls. And he's directly next to the room that Robert would have been staying in. That's why I could not have a townhouse. Nope. <laughs> so he says that his wife is watching the television news and that specifically he remembers the reporter Maureen Bunyan who aired a segment during this time frame. He was probably <laughs> thinking they interrupted his news. We interrupt your nightly news. With a scream of desperation. And Joseph's townhouse has an alarm system. One of those that give a little chirp chirp when the doors open. And even though they were told by the roommate Sarah, like, hey, don't expect me home. They heard this, Victor and Joseph, and they said this woke them up. But they didn't think too much of it. They thought, oh, Sarah's decided to come back home. And that was the sound of her coming in. Sure. And then they heard a muffled low scream. And they decided to go check it out. They went down the flight of stairs to the second level. And they saw the guest room door open. Robert laying on the bed. With a knife laid across his stomach and chest. And this is when they call 911. Laid across his chest? Yep. So just laying on top of him, there was a knife. Mm. So I'm going to play this 911 call. It's seven minutes, but it's important because I think what is said and what is left out are damning. The details are damning. Let's so, hear it. Yeah. DC emergency 911 operator 6752. Do you need police, fire, or ambulance? What's wrong, ma'am? We had someone that was in our house, evidently, and they stabbed somebody. Okay, somebody's inside the house now? I don't know. We heard. Are they bleeding? You see someone yes. bleeding? Someone is bleeding in our house. Okay, where's they bleeding from? Uh, I think he was. 
sick in the stomach. In the stomach? Is he conscious? Uh, Calm down for me. I'm going to send some help, okay? Female or male? It's a male. He's a friend of ours. He was spending the night with us. Okay. And who was the person that stabbed him? Do you know? Is, he, is, is he conscious? We need an ambulance. Ma'am, listen no, to no, me. He's not conscious. He's not conscious at all? No. We need someone right now. Is he breathing? Listen to me. Calm down. I'm going to help you. Okay. Is he breathing? I'm upstairs and he's downstairs. I don't know. Okay. Who's downstairs with him? My partner is downstairs with him right now. He told me to go upstairs and call the police immediately. Okay, who is the person? Okay, I'm sending paramedics and the police. Okay, who is the person that stabbed him? I don't know. We think it's somebody with an intruder in the house. We heard the chime of the door. Okay, that's 15. Ma'am, calm down. 1509 Swan Street, Northwest. Am I correct? Yes, The person that stabbed him, is he still in the home? I don't know. Route. Thank you. They're here. They are they're route to you now. Send the police and the paramedics, okay, to assist. Okay, what I need you to do is go downstairs, okay? The place where, wherever he was stabbed at, I need you to get a dry cloth, okay? And just apply pressure to that area. If he was wherever he was stabbed at on his body, I need you to take a towel downstairs while you're waiting for the paramedics to arrive and just apply pressure. Even if the rag or towel is saturated with blood, just get another towel and put it on top, but never lift the first towel off the area. Hold it on. Once it gets filled up with blood, just put another towel on top of that and just apply pressure until the paramedics arrive. Yeah. Yeah. In the heart? Yes. Okay. Is he breathing? We have help him right now, okay? You don't know who it was? Don't touch, don't touch, just, 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 just. Okay, is he breathing? He's breathing, but he needs help now. Okay, we have help and route, ma'am, okay? We do have help and route. Okay, just go down there and try to tell your husband or your other, um, the other half to just try to keep him calm and talk to him, okay? Keep him calm and talk to him until someone gets there. Okay. And at the same time, get a dry cloth and just hold it right there in the area. My partner's holding the okay. He's it, holding it on Okay, and once it gets saturated with blood, tell him get another one. Go get another towel okay. so you can apply it on top of that one once it gets filled up with blood. Okay. We, need, we need you to apply pressure on that area. He is applying pressure right Okay, just hold it there until the paramedics get there. They should be pulling up any moment if they're already en route to your location. You don't know who did this. We have no idea who did this. Is the door open so they can get in? We don't know how they got in. Okay, well, I'm asking you now. Is the door open so the paramedics can get in once they get here? What? Sorry. What were you saying? Is the door open so they can get in? Is the okay. door open so the, so the paramedics can get in the home? I'm going to go down. Is this a private home or apartment? It's, it's a home. It's a home. It's 1509 what? Swan Street, Northwest. The person had one of our knives. The person that stabbed him ran out the door with a knife? I, I think so. Uh, okay, anybody get any type of description of the person that came in the home? I have no idea. We have no description. We heard we heard the chime and, and 
we heard the scream from our friends. Okay. And so we came running downstairs. We ran in. So you both was upstairs and your friend was downstairs. Yes. You heard the door open and then you heard the scream. We didn't. I didn't hear the door open until after the scream. And then we ran down the stairs and we heard, we, are, we have an alarm. And so the chime went off. Okay. Is the ambulance, please, we really need the ambulance. Okay, they ain't wrong now, ma'am. Go to the door. They should be pulling up any moment, okay? I'm afraid to get on Okay, the person who's downstairs was the person that was assaulted. No, we're in the, we're on the second floor. Okay, so somebody need to go downstairs and open the door for the paramedics. You're not sure if that person's still in the home or not. I have no idea. Okay, we have paramedics in row, okay? What time is it? What time is it at the moment? Yes. 23.54. It's 11.54, ma'am. Yes. I mean... I'll stay on the line with you. I will stay on the line until somebody gets here, okay? I won't hang up. We need them right now. I'm not hanging up, but we need, we need help now. Okay, they're in route, ma'am. They are in route. <sighs> Let me know when you hear the paramedics. Can you look out the window and see if you hear them coming? I'm, I'm looking out the window, and I see nothing. I see nobody. Okay, it seems like forever, but they are en route, ma'am. They're coming. Here they are. Here they are. They're there. <laughs> I'm going downstairs. Okay. I'll stand in line with you till you open the door for the paramedics, okay? <laughs> We have one of the staff Okay, a lot to unpack. Just yeah. to be clear for the record, Victor is a male. The operator is calling him ma'am, but that's just a mistake. It is a male calling. It's Victor Zaborski calling in and doing the 911 call. Okay, and go. <laughs> Where should we start on this? So, I mean, the one, well, multiple things yeah. stick out to me, but. So let me tell you how it led up to the 911 call reportedly. So they said Victor and Joseph walk downstairs. They see the door open to the guest bedroom. They see Robert laying down with a knife on him. And then apparently Joseph tells Victor, go call 911. I don't think it was a landline. Landline. You asked me that while we were listening to it. I don't think it was a landline. And I'll, you know, tell you why in here just a second but to answer that question no it wasn't a landline so he didn't have to stay upstairs and then we also know that he went to the second floor because he told joseph the operator saying put pressure and then he ran all the way downstairs to let the paramedics in confirmed he is the one that let the paramedics in okay okay those are just like the 
make sure we know these things kind sure. of thing through the call. <laughs> sure. Well, the I mean, one thing that really stuck out to me was at first she said, oh, we heard the chime, then we heard the scream, mm -hmm. and then when she re-asked it, he said, no, we heard the scream, and then we heard the chime. Yep. So, I mean, pretty immediately a Time big difference. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's one big thing. And then we now know that, according to Victor and Joseph, when they walk down, Dylan's room is closed. And it wasn't until Joseph was in the room, Victor was in the process of calling the cops, that Dylan stepped out, said, hey, what's going on? And Joseph said something or another, but then he just walked right into his room. Because Dylan had taken a sleeping pill. Right. Watching a show, fell asleep. So he says. So he says. So, allegedly. <laughs> yes. So... Um, now, I'm going to tell you some information that's on the affidavit for a warrant. All right. So now I'm going to tell you information that I found on the affidavit. This is where I took a lot of references from because the prosecuting team, which in this case, because like I said, Washington, D.C. is not a state. The prosecutors, instead of being like the state versus whoever, it's the government versus whoever. Ooh, so this is super big official. time. Absolutely. So the call to 911 started at 11.49. The paramedics were then were then dispatched, and they got there within six minutes or so, uh, which is not terrible. That was less than an hour from when he went to bed. Uh-huh. Yeah. And right off the bat, Zaborski, or Victor Zaborski, without being prompted, introduces the theory of this intruder. That was like first sentence off his mouth. He's like, we had an intruder. We had someone stab someone in my house, the guest in my house, whatever, whatever. They're already pitching this idea of, a, of an intruder. Okay. So these are the observations from the paramedics that reported to the scene that night. We're, we're going to call them paramedic one and paramedic two. We don't know their names, but paramedic one said specifically when they approached the house, they observed a white male. Victor, standing on the front steps of the house, wearing a bathrobe, a white bathrobe, and speaking on a cell phone. So we know it's a cell phone. Sure. And then same paramedic asked Victor, what's going on? And this is when we hear him saying, um, you know, it, someone got stabbed upstairs on the second floor. And then paramedic one went into the house through the front door. These are all just things they have to report, right? Mm -hmm. So paramedic one has been a paramedic for 10 years. He went up to the second floor. He's being followed by paramedic two. When they got to the top of the flight of stairs, which are wooden steps, no carpet, worth noting, because you could hear someone running down them, I'm sure. For sure. Um, they were face to face with Dylan. And, you know, if you've ever been in a situation where you have to call paramedics and you're in the house, they're going to ask everyone on their way, where do we go? Mm -hmm. Right? They're going to say, like, point us. Where are we going? Left, right, straight? So they ask Dylan, hey, what's going on? And Dylan doesn't respond. He's just kind of staring at them. 
and just stretches out his arm and points to the bedroom, goes back into his room. I mean, Dylan sounds like a weirdo, and he probably is, because most people are. (laughs) But also, if it was legit that he took a sleeping pill, he may have been in in a stupor. Yeah, he may have been very groggy. I don't think it's necessarily... But when someone is dying in your house... It should have woken him up. The next room to you? Yeah. No, that's true. That would wake you the fuck up. Because he would have heard the scream. He would have heard Victor being hysterical on the phone. Mm Mm-hmm. He and... Exactly. There's a lot going on. What's the other guy's name? Joseph. Joseph. Joseph is... I'm sure sitting there talking to Victor, like, yeah, I'm putting pressure or whatever. Yeah. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on in this house. They're paramedics. He sees, you know, there's at least lights going on. I wouldn't be surprised if they have sirens going on. And there should be a good amount of blood. We'll get there. We should just call this podcast. We'll get there. I'm a smart cookie. (laughs) So the paramedics continued on to the door that they were pointed towards. And this is when, and and again, this is paramedic one's account, um, that he noticed Joseph sitting at the foot of the bed where Robert was, only wearing a pair of underwear. He was on the edge of the pullout couch in the room that was in front of the house, towards the front of the house, overlooking the main street. So... um, At this point, Joseph had his back to the door and was not applying pressure or touching Robert in any way or capacity. Cool. So, not doing what he said he had been doing. Yep. Sorry. If I'm sitting there trying to help my friend and they're telling me apply pressure, I'm sitting on the amount of pressure. Like, I'm... I'm, Oh, yeah. There's no way you're letting go. You've seen enough movies to know... You know, right, don't grab take the a pressure belt. Off. I don't exactly. know. <laughs> something. Put something. So then paramedic one, again, he, he doesn't know what he's walking into. He said, hey, what's going on? And all that Joseph said was, I heard a scream and said nothing more. And then Joseph got up from the bed, keeping his back to the paramedic and moved sideways away from the bed. Which one was the attorney? Joseph. Joseph is the attorney. Right. Okay. So... Because of his behavior and Victor's behavior, this paramedic was on high alert. He was taking note of everything that was going on around him. And he noted that in his 10 years of being a paramedic, usually when he responds to the scene involving a victim who has been shot, stabbed, or just injured in a violent way, Mm -hmm. generally... The people living in the house will be yelling about what happened, trying to direct them as to where to go, what they've done. Right. What they've done, what they think they need to do, because that's just almost nature. At this scene, he said it's worth noting that Victor, uh, Joseph, and Dylan made the hair on his neck stand. He said he was concerned with all the odd behavior and he visually checked Joseph's hands for weapons even as he was moving away from the body. There wasn't any. No blood on his hands either, though. 
And he was supposed to be applying Helping pressure. Helping his friend so, save his life. Because, so the paramedic, instead of going directly to the side of the bed that was closest to the door, he deliberately went the long way around so that he would be facing the door and facing anyone that would come in just because he felt so uneasy and he didn't want to give his back to Joseph. Jeez. So that to he me had to is be creeped out. Absolutely. So second paramedic um, has also is also a vet has been serving for 15 years. And they say that they immediately recognized that things were very wrong regarding the scene. She saw a large hole in the victim's chest in Robert's chest, big enough to fit your fingers into but there was absolutely no blood on Robert. There was none on the floor or anywhere in the room. Okay. Paramedic 2 also noticed that there was absolutely no signs of disarray in the house and that it appeared as if the body had been, this is her quote, showered, redressed, and then placed in the bed. End quote. Not strange at all, guys. No, 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 not at all. Just someone dead with no blood. Yeah. And three stab wounds. Dead with ginormous holes, like, supposedly stabbed in the heart, which, if you didn't know, will bleed a lot. A lot. If stabbed. The thing that pumps your blood through your body. Maybe some projectile squirting. Why not? everywhere. But you would have blood... Everywhere. Everywhere. On the floor. Everywhere. On your clothes. On... The white robe that you're wearing. So both of the paramedics immediately noticed that he had been stabbed three times and they were all to his torso area. So all to his chest and abdomen. And upon checking for his pulse, they checked for his pulse on his wrist, on his femoral artery, on his groin, on his carotid artery, on his neck. None had signs of life. His eyes were open and fixed and dilated and there was no sign of breathing. They hooked him up to an EKG monitor, and he was asystole. He was completely flatlined at this point. Paramedic 1 recalls that there was little, no blood, just like Paramedic 2 said, except for there was two, less than two or three inches wide, perfect drops of blood next to the body. But that was the only thing. I was like, tuck underneath him. And they still took him to the hospital. They tried to resuscitate. Mm -hmm. At this point, it was too late. So he was declared dead um, on 12.25 a.m. the morning of August 3rd, 2006. So just 36 minutes after the 911 call was made to him being pronounced dead, it was 36 minutes. Um, so at this point, the cops are at the house, right? Hopefully, yes. Yeah, right. So, well, the the paramed the operator said, police and paramedics are on the way. Mm -hmm. Joseph, he's a lawyer. The attorney. He offers up to the cops right away. Hey, you're gonna find my DNA on that knife. I moved it from his chest onto the side table. You will not find the intruder's DNA because they were probably wearing gloves. Oh, probably. Who says that? Okay. He's an attorney. Okay, Joseph. Yeah, right? 
super sketch. Super sketch. Why would you? Why would oh, you tell you, the police you'll that? You'll find my everything on it, but not anybody else. Because they were okay. really smart criminals, and they probably wore gloves. Probably. Way to think ahead, Joseph. Mm-hmm. The police noticed uh, that uh, after talking with the with the guys that they had this theory of the intruder that they probably used the back door. That's probably the chime that they heard. It wasn't confirmed whether the door was open or not, but they think that's a possibility. Dylan said that earlier that night while they were in the kitchen. Um, Robert had gone outside in the patio because he saw a spider. (laughs) Something really weird. And then he said, well, maybe that's when he left the door open. But the back patio has a fence on it with a door that goes from the patio out to the back you know to the street that door was locked so if anyone was going to come in through the back door through the kitchen they would have had to jump that fence and same thing going out because the front door was locked Mm -hmm. and the police noted that as soon as you're walking into the kitchen from that back door hello these guys are all you know well off they have a TV in their kitchen. They have a wireless uh, phone in their kitchen. And so these are things that if someone's going in for a smash and grab, would have grabbed and gone. Right. <laughs> right? So these are all things that are all passed up. So from the back door to where the set of stairs are to go up to the second floor, there's about 45 to 50 feet. That's a long ways. Mm-hmm. You're passing up. There's also a laptop sitting in the couch. So Another again. big item that is, quote unquote, passed up by an intruder. Yeah. And then they go up the second floor. The first door you come up on is Dylan's door. So let's pass that one up too. There's Yep. And then they go to the guest bedroom. Why would you go directly there? Right? And their theory, the guys, is... Intruder came in, <laughs> killed Robert, and then left. Sounds right. No rhyme or reason. And in the room, the guest bedroom that Robert was staying, his wife confirms this. He's a very meticulous man. Obviously, it helped him with life. He took off his watch. He took off his, you know, his wallet, his keys, set them all down on a table that was in front of the bed. After showering, he also put, he needed, he folded all his clothes and they were all neatly in front of him. The paramedics confirmed this as well, that that was all still there. He was very meticulous. And then the autopsy report also shows that he had his retainer in for the night because he grinded his teeth at night. And his wife confirms that, you know, that was one of the last things he did before he was going to bed. He would for sure put his retainer in and he was ready to go to bed. When he was found, he was wearing a pair of shorts and a William & Mary University shirt. And the shirt had three holes in it, consistent with where the stabs were. Mm -hmm. Not terrible amounts of blood on it. Hmm. Um, And then uh, the knife was on the nightstand the knife that the guys are saying was used in the crime Mm -hmm. okay so now i'm going to read to you the information on the autopsy report because this is where if it wasn't already weird she gets weirder (laughs) and it's weird 
yeah, it's really weird. So, uh, I'm going to say his name once and then I'm going to refer to him as examiner because it's a tongue twister for me and it's late. <laughs> the medical examiner's name is Lois Goslinowski. So, medical examiner <laughs> from here on out. So, the medical examiner performed an autopsy on Robert and found that there was three what he called remarkably clean, symmetrical, uniform stab wounds on his torso. Importantly, there were no defects in the stab wounds, no drag marks, abrasions, no fishtailing, or anything like that. So they were in, out, as if you were, this is going to sound weird, if you were cutting into a chicken, something that's not fighting you back. In, out. Well, you know? it would, I mean... You could say that if you did it really quick, that could have, like, that would be tough, though, because... To do three? Yeah, that would be really tough. But, yeah, it sounds like for there to be an unremarkable amount of blood. Well, this is in... The, this is for the stab wounds and how clean they were. Oh, yeah. So, in and out type stab wounds. Nothing gotcha. that once they were in, someone pulled away a different way. Mm -hmm. They all have the same pattern. Okay. So the wounds were perfect slit-like defects. And each wound was inflicted at exactly the same angle with the sa with a sharp edge oriented at 10 o'clock and the blunt edge at 4 o'clock. So if you're fighting someone, if you're stabbing someone, you're going to... You're not choosing the best angle. Right. You're just... You're going to go... They're probably going to go in at different angles. Oh, yeah. You're going to switch your hand and try to get in a stab where you can. Absolutely. So, according to the medical examiner, the wounds appear to have been methodically inflicted. Additionally, the examiner found a single petechial hemorrhage in the right eye, in the white part of the eye, and a single hemorrhage on the left lower part of the left eyelid. So... These are consistent with asphyxiation or someone trying to get their breath or they can't breathe, so they have that stress. But there was no rope marks, strangulation marks, bruises on his neck. So we don't know what caused that. What caused that other than just you know, someone trying to catch their breath in and out of itself. So, Well, like, yeah, I mean, I would assume if you're dying, you're kind of, like... Right. Breathing. Laboring deep. that could and possibly do that. If you, if you don't know about the, the hyoid bone, there's a little floating bone in your throat that when you're strangled or choked, it breaks. Mm. It's a little bone. It's about an inch. It's floating in the middle of your throat between tendons, I think. You, I don't think you can feel it, but that was intact. So that tells us that there was no force on his neck that was causing him to have labored breathing. Mm. So it could have been a pillow. Oh, sure. But we don't know that. At least the pillow that he was laying on, the paramedics noted that it was a fresh pillow with the only indentation on it was where his head was laying when they found him. So there wasn't any trying to get comfortable, you know, trying to fluff lay down, to, yeah, fluff it more to go to sleep, whatever. 
especially in a bed you don't sleep in normally. I think that would happen. You get to a hotel, you know, you beat the pillow a little bit, try to get it to what you like. So no, he was laying in the one spot that there was only indentation in the pillow where he was at. Just weird. Mm -hmm. So the first stab wound was on his central upper chest, about 15 inches from the top of the head. And it was about four to five inches deep. The second one was to the left side of the rib cage. Same thing. They're all about four to five inches deep. Which is like almost all the way to your back. So they hit um, the diaphragm. It hit the, it perforated um, the middle lobe of the right lung. It hit the third rib. It hurt, it hit the sternum. So it hit some major things. It sounds like they were definitely trying to get the heart. It, exactly. So the direction of the wounds were all front to back, right to left, slightly downward. According to the medical examiner, the stab wounds damaged major vascular areas and organs that would have resulted in a large quantity of blood. I didn't need a medical examiner to tell me this, but it's confirmed. Yeah, into the torso, and they nicked and stabbed major stuff. The knife that was found next to him in the on the nightstand was examined as well, and he and the examiner came to the conclusion that he does not think that was a knife involved in the incident. Why? Because it wasn't the right type. <laughs> <laughs> so the type of knife that was used was a long, skinny knife, and mm-hmm. not like your regular butcher knife. That, yeah, no, you know? it's on. It was all four to five inches deep. It sounds like yeah, you were holding like a steak knife. Yep, type. So here is an even weirder thing. Well, shit, it just keeps getting weirder <laughs> and weirder. But so the medical examiner observed several needle punctures on Robert's body. There were multiple needle punctures on the left side of his neck. Three needle punctures on the center of his chest. Two punctures on the upper portion of his right foot, and one needle puncture on the back of his left hand. His medical records and his wife confirmed that he didn't have any doctor visits in the last, you know, weeks, months that she could remember, so no reason for vaccines or any punctures. And he had no history of drug use. Right. The examiner also confirmed with the EMS reporters and the hospital that they didn't do anything intravenously. So there was no IVs put on him, no drugs that were administered to him in the you know part of the resuscitation. So there was no medical excuse for any of the punctures. And he is not diabetic. Nope. Diabetics do not take shots in the neck, the foot. No, I mean the it's generally one one spot, one or two spots that you right, like take the your thigh insulin. or the stomach or, or your arm, side, just a fatty yeah, part. Yeah, exactly. According to the examiner, none of these wounds would have rendered him unconscious immediately, and unless he was incapacitated either by being injected by some type of paralytic drug. Robert would have reacted instinctively to protect himself and or physically fend off the attacker. Mm -hmm. Significantly, there were no defensive wounds whatsoever on Robert's hands 
or forearms. There were no cuts, abrasions, lacerations, bruises, or any markings of any of anything indicating a physical struggle from Robert. And there was no blood on Robert's hands, which told the examiner that unlike someone who would have been conscious, or even if someone was sleeping and got stabbed while sleeping, would instinctively grab their hands, put their hands up to the wound because yeah. of pain. Well, no, and I think it's just a, what is that, a primal reaction yeah, if you were injured instinct. like cover it absolutely i'm hurt do it, something exactly there was no blood on robert's hands yeah at all the medical examiner also noted that robert's intestines about two feet's worth from down from his duodenum which is the stomach part that attaches to the intestine was filled with blood which tells us that Robert was alive for a considerable period of time after he was stabbed. Yeah. And his, so much so that his digestive system continued to operate, forcing blood into his intestines. Oh. It says, in other words, he was digesting his own blood. Yeah. So the examiner concluded that Robert was alive for a considerable period of time after the stab wounds were inflicted. The examiner ruled the cause of death to be stab wounds to the torso and ruled the manner of death a homicide. I would hope so. They also did a toxicology test on him. Does your run-of-the-mill type of checks. It checks for cocaine, methadone, ethanol, methamphetamines, opiates, just your basic kind of things. Mm -hmm. And all were negative. And they never looked for any paralytic drugs or anything that would have worked itself out of the system because they hadn't suspected that just yet when they did the talk to the talk screen you ready for weirder sure so the medical examiner also collected samples from robert's body for a standard sex kit so here's what he took the samples from he collected samples two swabs from the area around his genitalia externally and the inner thighs. Two perianal swabs, this was the exterior of the anus. Two anorectal swabs, which was inside the rectum or inside the anal canal. And two swabs taken from the mouth and lip area. The swabs that were examined by the FBI analyst by the DNA lab Detected semen on all of the swabs except the two that were in that were from around the lip area. That I whoa. Yeah. Okay, so there's semen found, right? Almost everywhere. Might be a clue. Yeah. Except for it's Robert's semen. His own his own semen inside his own rectum. So obviously this led the examiner to believe that. Robert was sexually assaulted right before he was murdered. Okay, so now back to the whole applying pressure thing. So we hear the 911 operator say, grab a dry cloth, put some pressure on it, and then if, if and probably when that one gets soaked with blood, mm -hmm. grab another one. Don't take the one that's soaked off. Just put it on top of the soaked one. Mm -hmm. Keep applying pressure. 
again. We've seen movies. We know things. That makes sense. Yeah. Good on her for giving him really good instructions. Absolutely. The paramedics, the police, they notice that there's a towel on the foot of the bed. And, of course, you know, they naturally think that's the towel. Mm -hmm. Well, now this is, you know, being looked at as a homicide. So the towel is taken into evidence. And I'll show you a picture of it. And and we'll post this on the social media, guys. The towel is not what you would think came from the scene of someone who was just stabbed three times on the chest. It's a white towel. And someone is holding it up in the picture for the evidence. There's three spots on it. Spots. Spots. The police determine, you know, it's their theory that it's not consistent with someone applying pressure on a wound that is bleeding or that should be bleeding because it's not even soaked through the other side. Mm-hmm. And there's fibers from the towel that are on the knife that were on the nightstand. A considerable amount. There's more than 10 pieces of, like, little pieces of the towel because it's, the theory is from the cops, from the prosecutors, that either blood was transferred from the towel to the knife to make it seem like that was the murder weapon, mm-hmm. and that they didn't use that towel to apply any pressure. There's no other fibers on the knife from the shirt that he was wearing, the Mary and William shirt or William and Mary shirt. The fibers on it are not consistent with it being the murder weapon and the towel is not consistent with it being applied directly to a fresh wound. So the guys are sticking to this, this theory of the intruder. Um, obviously the cops don't believe that for a minute. They, they, you know, they bring in the guys, they, they're interrogating them all. They don't say much other than they're sticking to the story of the timelines all match up as far as within themselves and who did what. So we know the cops are now at the scene, right? And they're collecting evidence. They're trying to undo this theory for the the intruder theory. They're trying to make their own um, conclusion to what may have happened that night. Mm-hmm. They comb through the house. Everything looks like it's in place. Nothing's missing. The guys confirm that there's nothing missing from their home. And... From the floor in Dylan's room, they recover a New Yorker magazine. It's open up to an article. And if nothing else, it's at least interesting. The article is titled, Late Works, Writers Confronting the End. And it begins, Last words, recorded and treasured in the days when the deathbed was in the home, have fallen from fashion. Perhaps because most people spend their final hours in the hospital too drugged to make any sense. And on the right side of that article, there was a full-page drawing of William Shakespeare lying dead in his bed. His body is shown positioned similar to the way that Robert's body was positioned when it was found. Okay. Right? If nothing else, it's weird. Yes, Dylan, that's weird. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, Dylan. <laughs> you look fucking sketch right now. And Dylan confirmed that was the article he was reading before he fell asleep and before the murder. He told the police that among 
a lot of his occupations. It in, uh, he was a writer, a massage therapist, and a direct marketing consultant. Oh, one of those. <laughs> yeah, right? As the scene was processed and items of evidence were collected, the police brought in cadaver dogs. As we know, these little dogs are amazing. Little treasures. And they're trained to detect human remains or blood. And they were taken all through the house. The dogs alerted dun, 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 mm-hmm. that they uh, sensed the presence of human blood or human remains in two locations. The first location was the lint trap of a dryer located just outside mm-hmm. the bathroom by Dylan's bedroom on the second floor. The second location was a drain that was outside within the patio outside by the basement apartment of the residence. You know, after inspecting it, the drain cover was open and as if it had been removed and not completely put back into place. And there was a hose that was in the same area and it was uncoiled as if someone had just used it and put it down, didn't coil it back up in where it belonged. Yeah. Based on the circumstances and the evidence that they're finding, their theory is that someone went outside, hosed themselves of any blood, hosed off, took those wet clothes and put them in the dryer. Mm-hmm. So that's why there's possibly blood in the drain outside in the patio and blood in the lint trap in the dryer. Hmm. I want to know whose clothes were in the dryer. I don't know. I want to know also, like, is this the initial search that they're doing? No, this is a warrant right after. I mean, they knew he was dead, so I'm sure they secured the house. I don't know. I've watched too many murder things to know that you can find things in the washer and dryer like yeah. a camera like jody Arias. yeah fucking <laughs> idiot let me wash this camera yeah no <laughs> moron yeah i wonder whose clothes was in the dryer mm-hmm. that's interesting mm-hmm. also why wouldn't you just throw in the wash okay so they were wet clothes already gotcha okay. but Who am I? I'm not going to walk them through a murder. (laughs) This intruder theory is just seeming less and less likely, but they don't have enough to bring charges on any of them for murder. Mm -hmm. The house hadn't been broken to before, and none of the guys had a criminal history. So it was hard to make a case against them because the motive... That too. And then there's not really a motive onto like what what led up to this. Mm-hmm. This was just supposed to be a night of him helping out a friend, crashing the night. It wasn't supposed to be anything but a regular Wednesday night in August. And so they couldn't build a case. And of course, they were working towards that and trying to, you know, solidify their case. But while this happened, or while this was happening, the building of the case... About three months later, the house was burglarized. Hmm. It was broken into by Joseph's younger brother, who had a key and had a friend with him that took about $7,000 worth of stuff from the house. The brother 
was had problems with drugs and also was a phlebotomist. Oh. Uh-oh. Yeah. Interesting, right? Yeah. They found the stuff, uh, you know, they, they know it was a brother that burglarized the house. The charges were eventually dropped, you know, stuff within families, whatever. Mm-hmm. There's not really a theory well built around whether or not it might have been the brother that night. Especially because he has a key. Yeah. It's just weird, right? But also right? Dylan. I <laughs> but also Dylan. (laughs) There's no solid theory around the brother, but it's just really odd. Hear me out. This is just me thinking. Um, You know, God, I mean, these guys are alive, so they can't come at me. Whatever. Um, (laughs) I wouldn't. (laughs) Yeah, don't. Don't (laughs) at me. Um, Joseph did something or know something. And was like, hey, brother, do me a solid. Want to break into my house real quick? For real. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. Want to break into my house that you have a key to? to? Right. Take some stuff. Why not? Yeah. Not just ask your brother, who is a well-off attorney, hey, dude, give me some money. Right. That's one thing that happened that planted doubt in the eyes of the law as far as hey this intruder theory might hold some water (laughs) because hey look someone did it three months later who's to say and maybe not the same person i think you were the one that told me a defense attorney doesn't have to say the truth but it has to be good enough to plant doubt yeah which is horrible the legal system is terrible to say the least it's good for liars though yeah, it is good for liars. And, I mean, look into statistics if you're that type of person. What is the probability of the same place being broken into twice in three months, and yet the first time, which I, I bet there's no statistic on this, the first time they take absolutely nothing. And then come back after killing someone. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, if I went in and killed someone, I would think the same house would get a bigger, better alarm system or something. Right. <laughs> but, you know, the statistics are probably zero that that's likely zero. to happen. Yeah, it's it's zero. Um, it's, it's zero. It's, it's zero. Let's just... <laughs> the mm. odds are zero. Yes. Odds are not in your favor. Exactly. Eventually, all that the government could bring the guys up on was obstruction of justice. They have the timeline pinned down to show that there was a significant gap between the time that potentially he was initially stabbed to the reporting of the crime. It's very evident that the evidence was tampered with tampered with. So they brought them up on those charges. The, those charges were eventually dismissed because there wasn't enough to charge them. And then Catherine, being an attorney too, and, you know, a widow at this point, uh, filed a civil lawsuit against the three men for $20 million in wrongful death suit. Yes, Catherine. Yeah. We don't know if she got the full 20. 
and that's not the point. I'm sure she, you know. Oh, no, she just wanted them to be them, punished. which is good, be punished. But the defense attorneys for the three men opted to settle out of court for an undisclosed amount because which they didn't want to. not guilty. <laughs> right. And, and, their, and their quote is, they didn't want the guys to say anything and possibly incriminate themselves. And, and my theory is if you didn't do anything criminal... You wouldn't incriminate yourself. But we have that right here in the U.S. where you can plead the fifth. And that's what they opted to do, which is not say anything that could be misconstrued or made them look guilty. Which I think, yeah, pleading the fifth would always make you look you guilty. You would always make, you know, but... But if there's enough evidence to say, maybe I'm not guilty, that also gets you off. Sure. So it's this, the, I say state, but I mean government. It's the government's theory that Robert was in one way or another incapacitated. It sounds like he was injected with something, mm-hmm. some type of paralytic. We know because of where his semen was found, he was probably also sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't know. We can only theorize on what may have happened that night. I think, here's my theory. I think that there was sexual advances made towards Robert that were not welcome or accepted. Mm -hmm. And some type of paralytic was used. There was drugs found in the home. Nothing to that extent, extent. But there was, like, ecstasy, weed. There was, you know, quote-unquote fun drugs found in the house. to know they were at least recreational with what they put in their body. Right. One thing led to another. We know that uh, Dylan and Joseph had a BDSM relationship. So they, uh, they did take into evidence some of their toys, some of their equipment, which included like a, an electro-stimulant machine and a, what they call a milking machine, mm. which is um, meant to force ejaculation on a man. That doesn't sound pleasant. No. They also confiscated a suit that forces the submissive to drink urine from the dumb excuse me yep is not my cup of tea no, or no. my cup or pee so <laughs> ridiculous <laughs> not my thing <laughs> but um these are these are just some of the things so they were into some kinky things but that milking machine we i don't know i couldn't find anything as far as if that was Tested to see if there was any DNA left on it. Mm-hmm. But we don't know. Yeah. The case isn't solved, obviously. It didn't get much recognition other than in the local area. I don't know why. Well, because there was an attorney involved. There's two. Right. Yeah. But one of them that possibly possibly was involved. It was in his house. So, just really weird circumstances. No blood. And I failed to mention this before, but the bed when he was found, 
by the paramedics, he was laying on top of the sheets. The sheets were still tucked in, kind of like hotel style. So it was a neatly made bed. He was laying on it, back straight on the bed, head in one place, like I said. So he was, um, it was odd odd. for somebody who had put his retainer in or whatever. Right. I grind my teeth and, and been, yeah, that's the last thing I do. I put it in my mouth and I fall asleep. And been stabbed three times. You'd think you would move around a little bit, for God's sake. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? I mean I don't I don't I don't buy the intruder story. No. I don't buy the break in at all. No. I don't know what I I don't think. know what the motive would have been other than maybe accidental. And then you got an attorney right upstairs. You're like, hey, dude, come help. (laughs) Yeah, I don't see how it would have been accidental. As far as the paralytic, maybe. Um, I think there are far too many coincidences. Yeah, especially because he was alive. So it wasn't the paralytic that killed him. Well, especially because Dylan was... (laughs) fuck, Dylan? ...reading that article and... You know, if he had trouble sleeping, like it could, it could. Ooh, like sleepwalking? Mm-hmm. <gasps> so that could Listen, be. Listen, cops in D.C., call us. I think we've made a move. I think we solved Cracking your case. case. Yeah. You're welcome. You're, You're welcome. welcome. That's a really good point. I didn't even think about that. Mm-hmm. Because some people taking sleeping pills could sleepwalk. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Yeah, so obviously he needed to calm down his brain to sleep and maybe he didn't take enough or maybe he took too much and... Then was reading a death story right before bed? Yep. Ooh. Maybe he was having a serious nightmare. But what about the punctures, though? And because, I mean, unless the stabbing happens, obviously, obviously it happens somewhere else because there would be blood on the bed. Right. 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 So maybe in the shower. Yeah. Maybe Robert was taking a shower. And then someone walked in there. Let's just say someone walked in on Robert taking a shower, attacked him or made a sexual advance at him there. Possibly using the apparatus. Oh. Because that's another thing. If he had been in the shower, there's no way that I mean, he was freshly cleaned. So there would be no semen left over on his inner thighs and whatnot. But I don't have a real... That's my only theory that Dylan, for whatever Dylan. reason, but yeah, the puncture wounds, the puncture holes don't make any sense especially so freaking many of them and the only knife that was missing from the house was of a knife set that dylan had (laughs) and the knife that was missing was a boning knife oh gosh and i believe it wasn't till after the charges of obstruction of justice were dropped that or dismissed that Dylan's mom brought that piece of, uh, or that knife forward to the police. 
with no explanation on how <laughs> she got it. My mom doesn't have any of my knives. <laughs> I mean, a baking pan, Pyrex. Maybe a Tupperware 10. Exactly. You know, but she's not holding any she's of my knives. She's not holding a boning knife. I don't usually travel with knives. <laughs> but when I do, I go to my mom's house. That's it. Yeah, so... You're just kind of left in the unknown. We don't know what happened that night unless one of these guys has a change of heart and... On their deathbed, decide to come (laughs) clean. If Dylan on his deathbed has a change of heart and has famous last words. They should uh, hook him up to a sleep machine, see if he talks in his sleep or... Yeah, well, they're they're not talking about it, and um, the only other theory um, that was brought forward was that, at least from the defendants, was that maybe someone that was anti-LGBTQ because Joseph was a gay activist lawyer um, was trying to make it seem like they had murdered someone, hmm. but... I don't think that holds that much no. truth because why would someone go to the guest bedroom? No one but the roommates or the people that lived in the house and Sarah knew that he was going to come spend the night and his wife, Catherine. Mm-hmm. Why would they go to the guest bedroom and not Dylan's bedroom? That's the first one. You know, why would they? I, there's so many things. Was the first floor bedroom closed? We don't know. Sarah, we know Sarah wasn't there. No, I know, but I'm saying if you walk into a home mm-hmm. and your goal is to kill somebody, you would most likely choose the easiest person, aka the person in the first floor. The first floor. Easy out, you know, get in and, and get out, out, boom, boom, if that is your goal. So yeah. that would not make sense. And then go up the stairs, past the first room, yeah. into and the second. After the scream, Victor uh, recounts that, or both Victor and Joseph, that they didn't hear any, you know, hurried steps down the floor, down the steps. The um, wood steps. The wood steps, uncarpeted, whether someone's barefoot or has shoes on, wood steps are going to make noise. Oh, yeah. They're going to make a noise. A if it's creak, carpet, maybe, maybe different story. Mm-hmm. But these are bare wood uh, steps, and they don't recall any of that. They don't recall the door closing again. So, just a lot of odd things. Yes. And the settlement. And the settlement. That's not, you know, saying you're guilty, but... Kind of. (laughs) (laughs) I mean. So now, um, Joseph and Victor live together. The three of them own a house in Florida, which is where Dylan lives. Kind of seems like exile to me, mm-hmm. but... You're sent to Florida. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Out of all the places in the world, you're sent to Florida, dude. Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. So that's the story, the case of Robert, Eric, Juan. Some Poor fucked Robert. up shit, right? Yeah. Poor Catherine. Poor Catherine. Not knowing what happened. She got called to the hospital that night, and, you know, she's the one that had to call. Oh, wait. Let me go back to the phone. So Robert's phone was 
taken into evidence. They took note of the two draft emails. That's why we know about them. But after that, the police was quick to return the phone to Robert's employer, which is Radio Free Asia. With And this is a crucial mistake. Without A, fingerprinting it. The Blackberry again, with all a, the buttons. Exactly. Not only the thumbs to push the buttons, but usually when you're drafting an email on a Blackberry, and, and for you youngins, I'll put a picture <laughs> of what a Blackberry looks like. Uh, you, you've got your four fingers on each hand on the back of the phone, usually. Oh, yeah. So that is like a full eight-finger Possibly. Because you pretty much had to. Like, it's not like a text. You're writing an email. You're going to try and... It's a QWERTY keyboard. Like, write as efficiently as possible. Mm Mm-hmm. So, didn't get fingerprinted. They didn't pull any other data from the phone before they returned it to Radio Free Asia. And Radio Free Asia, once they got the phone back, because it was their property, it was Robert's work phone, them assuming... And I cannot blame them for assuming this because I would too. If police gave me back something that was initially held as evidence, I would think they got everything they needed off of it. Yeah, they're done. As far as the business goes, this is a device, a piece of property that I need to use again. So they erased everything from it before. And the cops never pulled anything from it. So this was never been able to be researched further useless piece of (sighs) crucial evidence yes so it's not we don't know the exact and this and this sometimes you know could be relevant whether or not he used the right punctuation the right words towards his wife the right words towards his co-worker the the right Mm sign-off these are all things that sometimes may have mattered Oh, like yeah. I like mean, me, you would have known if there's two spaces after a period <laughs> or one space after a period. Well, like in me, like I like if I do a smiley face, it will never be a regular smiley right. face. Like and I I write things differently to my wife. Exactly. So all that information, which I think would have been crucial to know maybe who was it that drafted those emails. Yeah, did they make was sense? never preserved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, okay, so now that's the case of Robert Aragorn. <laughs> Poor Robert. Yeah, seriously. Um, I really hope that eventually this is solved. I, I mean, I think, but I again, I think the only way that's going to happen is if there's a confession of some sort. Yeah. But if so, at this point, no matter who it was, they've gotten away with it. Yeah. There's that. There's that. So I'll be posting some pictures, the the main ones, uh, pictures of the people involved. If you kept track of all of them, good job. On Instagram, our Instagram is a stranger danger podcast. If you would like to send us an email of any sort, the email is a stranger danger podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Stranger Danger, colon, A True Kind Podcast. You can join the group if there's any gruesome pictures, anything that would have been like autopsy. I have the full affidavit for the warrant that I would be that I would be sharing. It's going to be on the group page, which is Stranger Danger, colon, Murder Lovers. You can find us on Twitter, 
handle at sdtruecrimepod. Thanks again, guys. Let me know what your theories are on this. Yay. Happy spooky season. Happy spooky season. All right. Good night. Good Bye-bye. night.